Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jean Lee from the University of Arizona. Joining us today is Dr. Thomas Collin, a professor of East Asian Studies and History from Princeton University. Thomas recently published Samurai and the Warrior Culture of Japan, From 471 to 1877, a source book. Uh, It's published through Hackett Publishing Company, This book is a collection of historical documents and literary works by the samurai class from ancient to early modern Japan. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Jeannie. I'm delighted to be here today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So before we jump into the book, what do you teach and research about? Well, I do teach... um ancient and medieval Japanese history here, here at uh, Princeton. And I, I, I really cover from the full range to around 1600. Um, and I do a variety of topics, but a lot of what I work on focuses on the warrior culture and all that, because that's where my, a lot of my research has been on. So how did you get interested in uh, warrior culture? Well, it's, it's kind of, it's a, it's a funny story that, that uh, when I was growing up as a kid, I had no connection with Japan whatsoever. And I remember just, just in junior high and a whim of, of buying a book about the samurai. I mean, I, I was interested in salamanders and lots of other things too, but I bought this book and I remember reading it and I thought, I don't believe this. I don't think this is true. I don't think that these people were willing to die and all that. And it just like the, all this sort of glorified stuff. But, you know, I just sort of put that aside. And um, uh, and I, you know, as the years passed, I ended up, um, I went to Harvard Summer School and I decided I wanted to, to devote my life to Japan on a whim. Um, and from there, I studied Japanese. And then I went to, lived in Japan and Sendai for a while. Then I entered graduate school and went to Stanford. And, and uh, so that's kind of my story. Um, and and then one thing led to another and i you know got my phd from stanford taught at bowden for a while and now i'm i'm uh, teaching here at princeton nice the warrior culture and samurai has always been such a popular subject among not just only uh, learners of japanology but recently it's been taken up by um hollywood a lot as well so what prompted you to write this book well i've always been kind of interested in um revealing the samurai in their own voices in their own terms and uh, one thing is maybe even as i tell you about like how my research began is that i was i was really wondering even as a phd student what am i gonna write my dissertation on and i went and i i looked in the library and i found pictures of these documents and they're called petitions for reward and what they are is these warriors would would sort of it's like an insurance claim would list all their damages and everything that happened to them uh, including wounds and deaths and, and and damages and then they would request compensation request rewards and and i realized that the term used people used to think it's like loyalty but it's like no they really needed compensation for their actions and when i looked at the document i realized it's a totally different view 
than what we normally see about these warriors because one they are not talking about dying in battle if anything they talk about how they don't die in battle um because it's you know it's but they also are very careful about talking about all their 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 various damages so so through that i, I really decided that i want to to study this because a lot is knowable about the past. And then as I look at the sources, I realize there's this incredible diversity of sources that either people writing about warriors or the warriors themselves that are writing that are unknown because they're all written in very difficult language and it has never been translated. So that's why I really wanted to do this project. Um, and I've, I, I've tried to do some other source readers, but often there's a bias toward, the, I call it a presentist bias, where some of the readers are like, we only want you to do 100 pages of pre-1868 or something. And I wanted to do something which really reveals the past on its own terms in a lot of ways. And so this is where Hackett Press is great. Uh, Rick Todd Hutter was the editor and he approached me about doing something. Thing, and I said, oh, this sounds good. And I have over the years translated a lot of pieces. And, and uh, so I decided, well, this would be a perfect thing to do. And, and, it, and he gave me a lot of freedom to put in what I wanted to put in. And, and that's how this book came about. That's wonderful. So what's the structure of this book? Well, it's roughly chronological, um, and that I, I wanted to sort of, um, you know, reproduce sources that are either by warriors or about warriors, and uh, but something direct, really. And, and so I start at 471 because that's one of the oldest uh, writings of Japan. So the first 500 years basically are just five swords um, because because the, the, there's not a lot about the warriors, and most people think about the samurai sword and all these things, but I wanted to show that the old swords are very different, and because they have writings that were buried with warriors, they are probably the best sort of artifact at these early times. And then from there... I follow chronologically. And so the early chapters are, are more about like courtiers and people writing about warriors. And it's not until I get in the 13th century where there's the creation of a new warrior government called the Kamakura Bakfu or the Kamakura Shogunate. And at this time, these warriors start creating laws. And by the, the act of creating these laws and other precepts leads to this upswing in documents. The warriors are able to inherit property. And so you see that they start governing, they start managing lands. And because of that, you start seeing this real increase in documents. So if you look at the book, even though it covers from 471 to 1877, it really 13th, 14th centuries where the documents get extremely rich and we go on from there. Um, and so the principle is, again, roughly chronological, but also I want to get sources that talk to each other. And, and I know often we do things where you have uh, accounts that have different perspectives, and, and, I, and I'll do that. But what I, one sort of really interesting subtext, I try to get different, totally different sources that will actually corroborate other sources. Um, and so, so for example, I have one case where there's this one warrior um, who uh, fought against the Mongols, and he, it's the Takizakiswe Naga's his name, and he wrote these Mongol invasion scrolls. And he was he didn't have a good reason for getting rewards, but he went to Kamakura, and he was just so annoying that they gave him some lines on a horse and told him to go away. And then after that, I translate a law amendment, which says no one can come to Kamakura and petition for rewards. And so and that that just shows that, you know, the difference of the specific versus how, you know, the, the, the law and how they dealt with this in general. 
or there's another case, some cases where there's assassination attempt of an emperor with one of these warriors that runs in and he's in his armor. So, so I, the subtext of that one is, is I don't want to, I don't believe the ninja existed when they're actually fighting. And this is a perfect example because the assassin comes out in red armor, comes to the palace and say, Hey, where's the emperor? Um, and, and it's a very funny account, but then I show other documents that, that reveal the response to this. So I really what I've uh, tried to do in a lot of cases is, is show that a lot of these sources can be relied on and they are reliable because you just see these other connections. And so, so that's what I, I want to show as well. Um, that is absolutely interesting. And when I was reading the book, uh, one of the things that I enjoyed the most was the, the various genres of materials. So we have letters and you said we had the, the law edit verdicts. Um, so what types or genres of materials have you selected in the book? And what was the criteria for selection? Well, the that's a good question. I mean, I wanted to to try to provide somewhat representative examples, but other things other things that are intrinsically interesting, and I, I so I would just pick based on the different times what would would cover that, you know. And so um, so like one of my an earlier one, there's the famous tale of Genji, which is a, a supposedly an account of courtly love and all that. And I provide this one little known vignette where one person goes to the provinces and you have this warrior who's a terrible poet. And and I think that shows, you know, how they try to respond to the court. Um, but I just tried to give as, as many representative examples. And that's where if you notice the types of sources change over time, because at first the warriors are being talked about and then starting after they make their laws, they do their court cases, you see they start producing documents. And then I'd say then you start getting more personal letters. Um, and one of my favorite accounts is actually sort of this, this, this whole cache of letters that was discovered in a Buddhist statue by a warrior to his family. Um, and then from there, they, they govern more. So you see the movement toward law codes. And interestingly enough, after 1600, they they're at peace so everyone starts writing autobiographies and just start talking about themselves and so it's kind of they they really do change over time and what they talk about changes over time so you could even see like when do they start talking about money uh, and you could see that that's a shift and so i i do think that's that's a sort of a help with the chronological perspective but uh but again it was more interest than anything else i would say um but i depending on the time actually different genres come to the fore that's probably what i would say and that's that accounts for most of the difference really fascinating now in the beginning of our little chat you mentioned um that there are some existing uh understandings or conceptions of the warrior culture that might not be completely accurate so um before we dive into the the documents, are there any um, important concepts that you think the readers should know um, in terms of major uh, historical concepts or, um, like you said, existing uh, potential misunderstanding about the warrior age? Well, I would say that that's a that's a great question. There's there's a couple key points I'd say. One is that people are fighting. People are, but the idea of a warrior order, like the samurai order or something, that comes in late. That comes into being really in the 1590s, where you actually have a clearly distinct defined status. And if you look earlier, you see that there are hereditary specialists that are fighting, but a lot of other people like commoners and all that are also fighting as well. And, and I think that's sort of one key point is that, the you know, even though it's called, you know, the samurai and the warrior culture of Japan, technically the samurai order really appears in 1590. It's abolished in the 1870s. 
70s. So that's the latter half of the book, um, whereas the general, more general warrior culture is something we see that goes back to these early swords and all that. So that's probably the one misconception. And then the second one is just this idea that these people are loyal to a lord and they're willing to die for someone and do this i mean it's it's i i think that's overdone like the the feudalism trope where that they receive lands for their lord and because of that then they fight to the end in fact that's really not the case and so you know if you look at the book too there's one of the richest sections is the events of the 14th century and there's actually the collapse of this first warrior government and i tried to provide all these different um perspectives um and and not only that but the accounts even from different perspectives often are reinforcing that they will sort of prove the same points just to reveal that what is motivating people isn't loyalty to any lord it's either religious considerations larger political things or a sense that their lineage is destined to rule but you don't have this larger solidarity to other warriors at all i think it's much more specific than that so those would be the two major points i would say that's quite interesting. Um, and actually, the, 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 when I first got into Japanese studies, I thought I was going to write my MA thesis on this text called Hagakure, which I think your book also covered a, a bit of. Um, Hagakure, um, for our listeners who might not know, uh, is a uh, classical uh, Bushido textbook. Well, it's called the Bushido textbook now because it was widely used during the Second World War um, as a sort of a propaganda education material. Um, but this book that talks about how warriors, how samurai should behave, um, written in the early 18th century, the person who wrote this book had actually never fought in a war. So it almost read like this warrior who um, longed for something that he never had a chance to do, but he had all these um, rosy ideas of how a samurai should behave, um, which I think um, a lot of people don't get uh, is that the warrior culture, like you said, in the 14th and 15th century versus ones from the um, 17th, 18th, and even the 19th centuries are very different. So I'm really yeah, glad. Um, yeah. I know. I tried to show that. And one thing is actually for that text, I really had fun. I mean, I picked the famous, like the way of the warriors fought to death, but I actually tried to do it because I actually feel that he's, he's grappling with, to me, the older warriors had a lot more autonomy. And so his focus even on the importance of death and all this other stuff, it's a way of showing that you still have some autonomy in things. And so there's this one, I'll give you an off-color example where the, the last one I gave is where they said there's this one really powerful, you know, a spearman and, and where he says, why don't you become my follower and I'll give you half my domain. And then the guy goes to a veranda and urinates off it and, and says, I couldn't do this. And, and I think that that's an interesting point because it shows this nostalgia is also for this autonomy of the past that you, and I think that's what the earlier warriors were. They weren't loyal to a lord. They were loyal to their holdings, their house, their family. And those rights that they had or something was a legacy of, of Kamakura and its laws. Because once these warriors got their own land rights, they would take the name of where they managed. And so that becomes so enshrined with their identity. And they would, if someone tried to take it away, they would fight over that. So so that's a, a real difference than, than how they're later remembered. So I, I kind of, I he is interesting. He is interesting. And I, I get, he was a very frustrated man, I think, in many ways. So <laughs> Yes, I totally agree. Um, now, 
when this warrior culture is presented on the Western screen or TV, um, so this this interesting thing is a lot of um, the portrait of samurai war, the focus is given to the medieval period, so the 14th um, to 16th centuries. Um, and your book, like you mentioned, begins with the 5th century, ends with the 19th century. So in ancient Japan, in the beginning, what were warriors like? Well, that's, I mean, you did have conscription. So you had people in a village, like a few people to be selected, and they had to serve their whole life. And, and so there are actually some they wrote some poems or some poignant things, but that early experience, um, it's much harder to, to get a sense of, but they would be more infantry, um, larger numbers, um, people conscripted and moved all over Japan. And I'd say it's a very different experience than how we imagine it. It just, it's so much more remote. That's why I decided to sort of, you know, to, to, to more, just, just sort of skip over that fairly quickly. Um, one could do a volume about that a lot more, but it'd be mostly writing with other poems is, is how I would say it'd be the source. Um, and then, so, so that's what I would say, but there's, it's harder to know. And, and even the earlier times, like I do show like how it's hard for people to estimate the size of armies. And, and I do provide how courtiers will portray the warriors in certain ways, but to get the warrior's own voice, as it were, it's really, it comes through the laws, through legal cases, and then ultimately through letters and these other things. So it's, it's more like we can't know as much about their experiences until later. And that's where I think it gets richer in some ways. Um, I can guess, but it's just, it's a, it's just a lot harder to know. Um, and so that's why I really want to show that sort of, you know, what we can know and just focus more on that than what we can guess about. See, so from the existing materials, what aspects of samurai life, warrior life, I should say, can we at least um, speculate? Um, how did they, I guess, how did they get selected? Like you said, how did they train? How did they live? So they, I mean, I would say that um, by the time, for most of the coverage of this book, conscription ends and it becomes hereditary. So it means that to, to be a warrior, actually, you have to be able to skill at, at um, uh, archery, which requires practice from a very young age, and and riding horses. And so so what it means is that for most people, it, it really, it's, a, it's much more socially limited. But what's what I find interesting is there's a term called hyaksho, which means common, or means in modern Japanese means peasant. But in the letters I translate the 14th century, some of these people have horses too. So we know that in fact, the number of people who could ride and, and have some proficiency was, was greater than we would imagine. I would say, um, but there is, but it's, and even though I say there's no warrior order, everyone is extremely status conscious because you have those that can lead others in battle. And it's basically based on who has a house. If you have your own house, you have your own property, and then you can lead followers and you have autonomy. If, if you don't have your own house, you have to serve someone else. You have to be with them. And in that sense, there's more of an obligation to be what I would call loyal, but those people don't write their own documents and don't do their own thing. So, so what's interesting is you have this sort of real gradation. Um, as far as training, you can get some sense from maybe uh, some chronicles and stuff, but they don't really talk about it. But um, And uh, other aspects of what they believe in and all that, that's where like later on when I provide some of their prayers um, and oaths, and that gives you, I think, a better sense of their sort of, you know, worldview in a lot of ways. 
but I think the laws are also very, I'm, you know, I have a lot of law codes that come in, but I do think that the laws were very central to what they're doing. And if you read the laws carefully, you can get a, a lot of sense of actions that they did that, that the people in charge didn't like, you know what I mean? So I think there is a richness there. And like one of my favorite ones is like, you know, the, one of the tropes is Japan as time passes goes to a period of warring states and you have violence and, and all that. And and I have sources that talk about the war and all that, but one of my favorite law codes, this is in the, the 15th century when it's supposedly in chaos. And one of the Lords say, people keep coming into my garden and peeping into my mansion. Stop it. I'm tired of people just looking in my house. And it's like, well, that means there are no walls, no fortifications. It's a totally different world than we imagined. And I think that often these reconstructions of the past see it as more like, you know, big castles and, and they they miss a lot of the, the, the fact that it wasn't always fighting all the time. And I think the violence was much more constrained until the 16th century. So I would even argue that, that, you know, even though you have civil wars for a long time, the number of fatalities are less than sometimes you have like these major political disturbances at a time at peace. And you might have uh, thousands of people purged, whereas in the Japanese wars, particularly the 14th century, you have casualties would be like 700 would be a major battle, you know, something like that. Wow. Fascinating. And listening to you talk about these uh, different materials, it sounds like um, uh, the, 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 um, the, the types of materials saw a transformation. We see more law codes, we see more just writings in general by samurai, um, the samurai, by the warrior class. Um, so as the the court, the, the imperial court rose to power and had a better um, system, sort of from the 11th and 12th centuries, how did the warrior culture transform? And I guess um, another question we should probably ask is, how come we are seeing more uh, law codes written down around this time? Well, it's a great question. I mean, I, I would say that so earlier, there's still the notion, you know, even after conscription ends, there's the notion that the warriors will serve the court, will serve courtiers. And so some of my earlier accounts, they talk about like a there's a, a bad noble and he has he collects all these warriors and they throw rocks at the neighbor's house and all that. So these people would be incorporated into um, a court network. And also the its court offices, court titles are very prestigious. And these people exercise authority as agents of the court. And so, so that's really what I'd say that they're very much under the control of of of, of the of the imperial court in a lot of ways, um, and it doesn't really change until there's a war in 1221 when this new Kamakura regime um, fights the court. And the reason why they fight is that they had created a sort of an ad hoc. This, it's a title called Jito, which means like land steward manager, whatever. And that was something that if that the principle was if you received it, you could keep it and give it to whomever you wanted, including your wife, children, multiple childrens, and it's a little apocryphal, but even like a dog. Okay. Um, and so, so, so because of that, that was a limit on court power. So the emperors are very are still you know they don't like limits on their power. So you had a civil war in which the court was defeated. And the court was defeated, and I have a letter about this. It's interesting because it's more, if you think in terms of legitimation and everything else, of course the court's going to win, but Kamakura was just practicing and they had experienced wars before. So they just moved so quickly that people couldn't really think. And they just showed up and people joined their cause and they defeated the court in a six-week war. And 
and then they banished some emperors, and then they decided they would regularize succession. So from that time on, they don't run the show. That's one misconception that then this was warrior rules. Like, no, they have judicial and policing authority in sort of a limited way throughout Japan, but they also then start creating laws for these jito. How can you you know, um, maintain these rights? Who do you give them to? How do we deal with inheritance disputes? And that's where all this really sort of happens, I would say. So, so it's, and then those codes, which happened in 1232, it's, it's a couple years after the war. It's like people are, are trying to figure out who gets my lands. And so that's why Kamakura regularizes it. And from there, those codes are kind of glorified. So I actually show in later centuries, even three, four centuries later, how people plagiarize parts of the codes or they'll refer to them directly. It's kind of like, you know, in, in, in the English legal tradition, the Magna Carta is a foundational document, and that's 1215, I believe. Um, and here these codes are 1232, and they're they're very comparable in a lot of ways. And I think that that, that puts Japan on a very different trajectory. Lots of things change then. Um, there's limits to court power. Um, Buddhism changes because the court all buddhism isn't linked now to the court and even names change i don't talk about this in the book but the, as i said the warriors take their names from their their lands so you see this explosion in the number of surnames that's why there's so many different surnames in japan it really comes back to that particular moment in time and so that's why i i talk about that and that's why i think the trajectory is so different that they go into governing and administering and then we start seeing personal letters i mean i'm really happy about those letters of the 14th century because they show a different side of that um and, and we don't really see that kind of personal thing again until they start writing their autobiographies now that you mentioned autobiographies, um, as we're moving to the 18th and 19th centuries, a lot of the texts you selected are from autobiographies. Uh, whereas yeah, pr- the previous centuries, we had more letters, poetry, government documents. So why is there such a change in the types of materials from 18th and 19th centuries? And why, um, why are these warriors writing autobiographies all of a sudden? That's a good, that's a really good question. I don't know if I have a, I mean, maybe they have more time on their hands. Um, I mean, there are other documents, so they are administrating, but they're doing a lot, but that's so dry that I just decided that they're not fighting. So a lot of these documents have nothing to do with what we would think the warriors are doing. Um, I, I did a couple, I mean, sometimes I think that why they write about this is they're very conscious of change. So like this, the, the, one of the accounts is the autobiography of Adai Hakusek, and he talks about his grandfather's father and himself. And it's so interesting just to see how they're dealing with, to me, the difference of when earlier warriors had their own lands and fought for them. And then later on, they lost all their lands and and how they dealt with that and actually how to serve a lord. So that's a wrenching thing. That's back to why the author of Hagakure was so upset about things, because it really there's like, what is the rationale for their existence and so on? So I, I and and I what I found interesting is is that they're, they're trying to justify their existence. But like the the Arai account, two things that really shocked me. Um, one is I have an episode where there's I call it like a psycho samurai where a guy got caught fishing. He gets upset and he starts just going around killing people and he'd leave his little calling card and then he disappeared and and he disappeared for a number of years. And then they found him like 20 years later. And where he was, he was hiding in his ancestral lands. So he had no connection, but he left there, and the people remembered these were our lords of many years ago, and so they 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 protected him. So that shows you those older attitudes are still there. And then the other thing actually surprised me. This is this is only when I was doing the index of the book, is that uh, he talked about where his ancestors came from and how they moved around, and. 
And he mentioned where they originally were located, this province called Hitachi, and where I had those 14th century letters was also the same place. And actually in those letters, the person who said to his wife, if I die in battle, which he did, rely on the Arai family to help you out. And I think it's the same family. So it's kind of like, you know, these these connections you can make and it's 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 a big country, but it's still a small world in some ways. And so you can find a lot of links. Um, so I, I guess that's what I would see about about those accounts. And uh, um, and and some of the ones are also late in the Tokugawa period as well, because but they're writing about, again, the trauma that happens in the 1860s of the Civil War. Um, or there's another one that the, uh, Luke Roberts translated about a warrior who was involved in the Korea campaigns and then uh, lost a battle at Sekigahara. But they're, I think they write about things when they have to deal with these wrenching transformations. I guess that's what I would sort of say and, and, and trying to make sense of the world. And after they do, they just go on and talk about other things. That is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> I, I, yeah. So my, my own studies uh, about the 19th century and um, well, even even though I look into fiction, um, some of the writers turned out to be samurai, and it was really funny to see how, um, well, in the beginning, how samurai wasn't supposed to be involved in vulgar literacy, such as popular fiction. But then towards the end, we we're seeing people who are um, dipping their toes into um, writing popular fiction, um, even though they didn't quite sell. So. <laughs> yeah, no, they're doing, a, yeah. They're, they're doing a lot. I mean, and the other thing I actually wanted to bring out, because often like at the later times, people see it as being so different. So one of the last things I translated were these petitions that date from 1868 and that are almost in the same format for the 14th century. So I also want to show that for all these wretched transformations, the, the literary and bureaucratic culture is actually incredibly durable. That Can you imagine 1868 people are adopting the format of the 13th? 1360s and they're doing the same thing even though the warfare is completely different so that's that was sort of another thing that i wanted to sort of include in there indeed now how does this book relate to your own research um actually i don't think we've really talked about this but what does your research focus on and how does this book i guess fitting your entire um bigger picture well i i've i've written um a couple of monographs, and one of them is called State of War, the Violent Order of 14th Century Japan, where I look at the warfare of the 14th century as being transformative of political, intellectual, and all these other developments. And so a lot of those materials obviously made it into into this work, you know, um, and some petitions. I've Some stuff I um, – there was a, a chronicle called the Tai Heiki, which had this sort of comical episode of people that were, you know, trying to besiege a cap, castle. And that's something I actually translated as a graduate student in, like, 1993. So Maracas was able to keep that file – that word file survived and made it into this book. So I'm, I'm happy about that. Um, the other work I did is, is a study of the Mongol invasions called In Little Need of Divine Intervention. And so that's where I provide an account of this war named Takizakusei Naga. Um, and so he makes it. Um, as some codes and as some some of the records there, but then I add other things. And I also wanted to have kind of a link. There's an attempted invasion of Korea in the, in the 13th century, and then I wanted to re- provide some sources about the the seven or sorry the 16th century invasion as well, just to kind of look at those connections. Um, and the the next point is I actually um, as I did my research, I wrote a book called Sovereign Symbol, and in this one, I realized that. The warriors weren't the ones who always wanted to fight. They were often in the peace faction after all, because they're dying and all that, they're like, we want to stop. But it was certain courtiers and monks 
which for them, the political competition was a zero-sum game, and they are the ones that propelled these wars of the 14th century. Um, and so also I put in then, there are some letters of monks, and I try to give a sense of, there's a monk named Kenshin who was like the most loyal advisor to the shogun in, in the 14th century. And one subtext of this work is the notion of loyalty and dying for a lord comes out of the monastic nobility. It doesn't come out of the warrior culture. Um, and I actually show that because there's this one prayer where the monk, he, he was like, I know the general's sick, so let me die before he does. And that's, that's in there. And then he does die. And then the, the general's like, wow, he preserved my life. And he starts copying these sutras and so on. So I wanted to reveal that aspect of things. And then finally, I've been looking at the Warren States period and these different lords like the Ochi, And so those laws made it in. So in some ways, it's kind of culmination of all my monographs of what I've done, I've, I make references to, to this. Uh, and so, uh, but it's also stuff I've done for classes and all that. So it's, it's not just meant to be me sort of spinning off sources I've used, but it's, it's like, as I've done my research, I wanted to provide the most unique and original and, and illuminating ones. And how many samurai source books have letters about monks fighting in battle for their gen? It's not what you expect, but I think that's an important side of things. Yeah, it's just wonderful that you're able to make all the connections from all these years. I've, it's, it's like I've been wanting to do this for a long time. And so I had stuff, but also I was lucky that um, during the COVID time, I mean, everything's locked down. And so I actually had some of these sources here and there was a visiting scholar named Horikawa Yasufumi and, and he, everything shut down for him and here he was. And so we actually, hey, let's work on these law codes um, because the law codes are actually the most challenging thing to translate. I would say the language is very laconic. It's very specialized. Um, and I would say that probably one of the biggest scholarly contributions would be a lot of these law codes, just because they're so difficult. Um, the Kamakura Law of 1232, this is the second translation that's ever happened. The first was in 1904, oh gosh, I think it was 1904 or something like that. I, I could have had the year wrong. Um, but it's, again, I, I think it's a, it's a big contribution there. Um, Indeed it is. Now, out, out of all these um, documents, these sources, uh, we've covered some of them already, but do you have a favorite one? <sighs> That's really hard. I mean, so I'd say I've talked about the letters, probably the of the Warriors family. That might be my favorite one. Um, that's probably the one that I translated that's a favorite source would be that one. Um, and since I've talked about but I'd say for other works, things I've included... Um, I'd say one of my favorite things is actually from my, my advisor at Stanford, Jeffrey Mass. He, he did a case study and you have these, this law case. And what's really great too, is you have a woman who is a, a warrior involved in guard duty and you have this whole case about her land rights so that I could include that in there. Um, along with, there's another warrior called Shigetoki who wrote these like uh, precepts. And I'd say that there's, they really come alive as well. So those are some of my, the ones I've included, those are my favorite, but I'd say that for what I've translated, I really like the the letters of this Yamanoshi Tsuneyuki because it just, they're very poignant. They're very sad in some ways because he's, you know, I mean, they're, they, they, you really get a sense of this battle and the, he died and then they put the letters in a statue and it wasn't discovered to the 1990s. Um, so I'd long wanted to reproduce those like in an article but here i was able to basically put i'd say about 80 percent of them in this in this book nice now um my last question for you is a bit broad um, so this book um, as a source book it will 
obviously be a great material for classrooms about Japan, Asia, and even world history. But in a broader sense, how do you think primary sources or historical documents like the ones included in this book could be used in the education of humanities and history? That's a big question. Uh, so, I mean, one thing, this is maybe coming back to one thing that I, I think would be really helpful is what I would call like close textual comparison. Because when I, so if you want to just compare like the laws to the court cases or compare the laws over time, I mean, you could you could do a law class and use this as a, as a book for that. Um, but I also want to show like, you know, that I don't want people to just assume that a lot of this stuff is fictional or can't be relied upon. That's why it's, I think, a careful reading reveals like certain points. One account will talk about the general, you'll see it somewhere else and they, they say the same thing. So I do, I just think in terms of careful analysis and source criticism and then really pondering what one can know from these things and what one cannot know it is a valuable thing. And so that was probably one of the, the key points of selection is that I wanted to get sources that speak to each other. Um, I mean, there's like an account called the clear mirror you know, it's, and it's a courtier account. And, you know, I've talked about how I, I privilege like warrior accounts and their own voices, but this courtier account is actually stunningly accurate. And so the latter part of the of like the 1330s, I actually provide this account. And then if you read it carefully and read the sources I've done, you see letters, military documents, completely different prayers that actually back up this one account. And so I would, I would that's why I'd say is like if, if if people can kind of just use it, not even just to understand about about Japan or the warriors, but about just thinking about what one can know and not know based on these sources, I think that would be helpful. And that's why I, I didn't want to do it like artificially, like one says something and the other says the opposite. And you say, oh, then the truth must be in the middle. I would actually be much more precise. Like some of these you just can't trust at all. And some of these you 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 can really trust a great deal. And and that's just based on on a careful reading. That's that's what would be my my hopeful goal. Um, I also want to show Japan not being just so isolated. So that's where the Korea connection. I tried to bring that in as much as possible. But it's but for the warrior documents, the, these these cases are more limited. That's wonderful. And um, if I can add a question um, to make this even broader, how do you see uh, materials like this, materials about Japan, primary sources about Japan, uh, could be utilized in classes or uh, learning that's not primarily about Japan, but say world history in general? Well, I think that's, I mean, I would say if you want to look at world history or something, I'm hoping that the, this is thematically broad enough that you could use this for a variety of different things. If you want to look at just military cultures, how are armies organized? How do they estimate the size? I have a section on how people try to guess how large armies are. I, th I could picture looking at Byzantine accounts and Mongol secret histories and, and Chinese dynastic histories and then looking at this. And so I'd hope that that would be something good for, for the comparative. Um, if you wanted to do a law course, if you had look at the Magna Carta and its cases, and then you look at here, we have the Japanese law codes and then their cases. And you could sort of, and then you could look at some, you know, Chinese codes, and you could look at other ones. So, so I'd say that would be another way um, that hopefully this could be used. So, um, yeah, I just, you know, I would hope that just people, even if they're not directly interested in the warrior culture, would look at this and 
and learn something from it and, and make a variety of connections. And that's really my desire is to, you know, what I've learned is this remarkable world that's completely different from how I thought it to be when I was in junior high, um, to, to understand that even if you don't know the language and hopefully you could appreciate it and make your own connections and, and, and know it more. Um, and also be skeptical of what's in the book too. That's fine too, you know. That's that's truly wonderful. I really, really like this book, and I can't wait uh, to use it in my own classroom and see how the students would like it. No, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for your time, and thank you for this wonderful book. Well, thank you very much again. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you. Me too. And uh, for our listeners who want a closer encounter with writings by Japan Samurai, Make sure to check out this new book, Samurai and the Warrior Culture of Japan from 471 to 1877, a source book by Dr. Thomas Collin. This is Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies. Stay tuned for our next episode.